Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on May 21, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. And this evening, we're talking with Brad Jane, who is running for the 114th State Representative District in South Carolina. This district covers much of the area extending from the northwestern part of Charleston and going out into some fairly rural areas. Brad is currently self-employed as a film producer and director. He has worked as a consultant and commercial director for top companies and advertising agencies in the nation, and he specializes in high-end broadcast and internet media content for groups such as A&E, JCPenney, The History Channel, HBO, South Carolina Aquarium, Roper St. Francis Healthcare, and many more. His long-standing relationships with major corporations, agencies, and nonprofit organizations is a testament to his professionalism and speaks volumes about his business acumen. His work has received attention at major film festivals and media organizations such as Sundance Institute, the International Public Television Showcase, the American Jazz Museum, and TBS's World's Funniest Commercials. In addition to his work as a commercial director, Brad works with programs that support media training and entrepreneurship in the Southeast and the world. This includes the South Carolina Film Commission's Indie Grants, where he produces short film projects by South Carolina filmmakers. In the three-year life of the program, their projects have been applauded by film festivals such as Tribeca, Palm Springs, Austin Film Festival, LA Film Festival, and several others. He also founded and oversees the Young Filmmakers Project, a high school filmmaking competition introducing the next generation of filmmakers to the technical and creative aspects of media arts. Brad, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for having me. So before we get started, and I've looked at your website, and you make references to this thing called the Low Country, and uh, I'm not from South Carolina, so could you explain to us what the Low Country is before we uh, launch into this thing? Sure. The Low Country is where I live. It's the area along the coast of South Carolina. What specific areas entail the Low Country might be determined by who you ask, but roughly it goes from Hilton Head, Buford area, which is on the southern side of the South Carolina coast, up through Charleston and into Georgetown, Georgetown County, including all the sea islands uh, that are along the coast there. And it's named the Low Country because this area is low. It's mm-hmm. right at the sea level. So Okay. Well, on, on a more personal side, then, um, what what is your primary motivation for getting involved in your state legislature? So I've been largely independent since I was in college. And that has given me so many opportunities in terms of the autonomy, in terms of being wide open to seeing things that could be done or needed to get done and being able to just focus on the practical ways to make that happen. It's the way I've been able to build up all sorts of very interesting projects and programs, bringing in all sorts of great teams together to do some really sort of substantial things. This is not something that is special. Everybody or most people do that in their own private lives. The place we don't see that happen is government, mm-hmm. is this this sort of self-governing process that really does not seem to be nearly as effective as it should be. And I've always been politically aware, I'm politically connected and, and work with different groups in South Carolina in the low country to try and make our community and state better. But it just got to the point where I was tired of being frustrated by all the hyper-partisanship 
in the silliness and just decided there's no reason I can't just apply the things that have enabled me to be fairly successful in other industries into government. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you, uh, I think it was somewhere in your website you said that something about, um, no, actually it was in our personal conversation we talked about this uh, <laughs> in our emails. And you think it could be a lot more effective when developing new ideas when you're not restricted by party or ideology. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. So obviously we know that there's a duopoly. There's two parties, Democrats and Republicans. And yes, there's a lot of great people in both parties. But one of the things that completely uh, restricts them from the beginning is that those parties are based on ideologies. There's, there are certain concepts, and there's a lot of them, and certain policies and certain platforms that they have to follow. So if you have an issue, if we have an, an economic program or an economic problem that we want to find a solution to. If you're a Democrat, half the idea is already off the table because you can't realistically go to something that would be deemed more of a Republican approach or idea mm-hmm. and vice versa. Now, look, that's a bit of a generalization. And we know that there's a lot of talk about reaching across the aisle, but that's the exception, not the norm. So if you're able to have a, a completely open mind, if you're able to be autonomous, if you're not having having to tie yourself to any sort of one platform ideology, you've got all the ideas right there waiting for you to figure out the best one that's going to solve that particular problem. It's the whole sort of clear eyes, full heart, can't lose situation, which is certainly how I see being most effective happens. Yeah. Well, as an entrepreneur yourself, uh, that is a necessary part of your life. You can't constrain yourself to a formula solution. You can't constrain yourself to a solution that gets dictated to you. You have to be able to move and, and, um, and act on things instantly without, um, yeah, without having an ideology steer your way. That sounds very, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Absolutely. Well, and, and you know, one of, one of, so as a self-employed independent contractor, there's typically a lot of things that I'm juggling at the same time. And, and this race, this seat would be another job as part of that, that I'm completely comfortable doing. One of the other sort of balls that I juggle on a regular basis is these um, job training and entrepreneurship programs that I started with Trident Technical College here in Charleston and also the state of South Carolina. And the reason I bring this up here is that this was a small training grant that was based on really arming South Carolina residents on how to be successful uh, as entrepreneurs and job holders in the media industry. But nobody from the government side really knew what to do with it. So try to came to me and asked me if I would be willing to take this, this grant and, and, and just make it as effective as possible for job training and career training. And they gave me a lot of autonomy. We were able to come up with some ideas that worked really well right from the get go. That just snowballed into a lot of successes. That's just a perfect example of what you can do if you're not being restricted by, by extreme bureaucracy or extreme ideology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and if we may dovetail then a bit into into education, um, yeah, and per- perhaps to build on some of the thoughts you just have here. Um, your website states, your, your campaign website states uh, that uh, you want to reform state education funding to make sure all schools receive their fair share, especially those in the rural areas. And so that got me reading a little bit about, you know, what's going on in South Carolina. And I realized there's some sort of debate as to how South Carolina plans to distribute education funds. There's this thing they called uh, the formula that they use. 
I'm not sure what that means, right. but um, can you give us some insight as to how you you know plan to change the formula, as they say, to ensure that rural areas get access to better education? Yeah, well, the formula is just the method for determining how much um, each school district gets, and, and typically you would do that based on the number of students, and that's how uh, uh, the county sort of uh, divides up their funds. And so there's this 40-year-old formula that determines the state funding of schools, funding on the state level, which at 40 years old is clearly outdated and should have been updated long ago. The way the current formulas work is they don't take an individual district's wealth level into account. Mm -hmm. So every district gets the same amount per student, even though some districts are able to enhance that funding considerably from their particular county coffers and, and other districts are not able to. So a wealthier district is going to have more money to spend on their students' education, um, meaning ultimately rural schools, for instance, schools that don't have as much county income can have considerably less combined education funding mm -hmm. and those schools suffer. So what we need to do, it's not a complicated answer, is we weight it so that schools without other funding options are giving more so that we equalize it out a little bit. You do take into account what other funding resources each county has. And again, this is way overdue, but it would certainly be a, it's a, it's a obvious high priority for me. And other legislators are sort of coming around to it, as you alluded to it. Yeah. Now, this has been partially allowed by language in the state constitution that says we're mandated the state is mandated to provide a minimally adequate, quote unquote, education. Minimally adequate is not going to serve us in this 21st century. So we should also look at a constitutional amendment that changes that language to high quality education. Mm -hmm. So we don't fall into this trap again. So we don't leave school be schools behind again and create more quarters of shame. Yeah. That, that actually, you know, that's not a South Carolina thing. I've, I've, I've lived about half of my life in California, and now I'm in Missouri. Um, both places have the same sort of issue, um, and it's it's what I would call a yeah. doom loop. To uh, to uh, borrow a phrase from uh, our friend Lee Drutman, who was on the show a few episodes back, and the doom loop is this: that the 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 areas that have less income, or, or I should say, the areas that have housing that is uh, pulling in less. Um, property taxes. Right. Yeah, right. Right. And so they, they, they and so less money then goes to the schools. Well, less money that goes to the schools, that means the quality of the housing goes down. So this thing sort of feeds into itself. This is a nationwide problem, really. Yeah, no, it's a cycle. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, just as a, as a broad purpose to everything, I mean, this goes back to the conversation we had about sort of having that middle ground of, of, you know, individualism and responsibility, but also making sure that people don't get left behind. There are simple common sense ways to make, make it so that schools and housing works for everybody. You just mm -hmm. have to push those ideas. You don't just take the first idea. You have to come, you have to take that first idea and you look for the next best one, and the best one after that. Then when you've exhausted that process, then you execute. Sure. And there's probably a lot of other areas you can draw upon too for for experience from people that have gone, you know, in, in districts, not only in Southern, in South Carolina, but in other parts of the country too, that have tried different things. And it would be interesting to see, you yeah. know, what's working, what isn't working and, and uh, go with what works, as they say. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's a big, as, as I'm sort of extending out my reach into this representative government side, that is a big part of, of our method is 
and I'm fortunate to have a lot of advisors from a lot of different industries that are helping me with this, but you look for successful situations. There's nothing, nothing jaw dropping about this. It's what any smart person would do. You look what has worked in other places and you apply that to your place and sort of success stories and data driven success stories are a big sort of foundational layer to the sort of program that we're talking about, especially when it comes to public education, you know, which, which, in addition to funding reform, needs all sorts of practical applications to it. Mm-hmm. And, and the other half of um, making your uh, environment um, higher quality is is the economy, right? So um, you spent some time on, on, on your platform, on your website here. It talks about the new economy. And, um, well, first of all, could you explain what that is? Because some people think, you know, the new normal is going to be what happens after the pandemic passes. But I think your new economy on your website, it refers more to um, the, uh, the 2000s. So can you explain what the new economy is and um, how it's going to work in South Carolina or how you would like to see it work in South Carolina? Yeah, I mean, I've... The new economy is, is basically just understanding how industries are evolving. Um, now, manufacturing is a perfect example of that. We know that there's all sorts of developing technologies, AI, automation, that sort of thing. So manufacturing jobs in the old economy were assembly line workers, and there's still an element of that. Now it's about understanding how to deal with the technology, the hardware, the software that does the AI, that does the automation and mm-hmm. being just as involved that way, it just being a different type of job and having the training and the understanding of those jobs so that you can put yourself in position to get those and thrive in those. Mm-hmm. So that's an example. Um, you know, we're obviously much leaner. Um, technology has allowed one pe- one person or two partners or a small group of people to do everything that a company w- that it took a whole company to do before. Mm-hmm. So in order to create a service or a skill or a product and make it marketable and understand its value and place its value in the economy, we can do that with smaller groups of people. Um, and understanding, and that becomes a sort of hybrid of entrepreneurship, gig economy, independent contractors. Mm-hmm. Understanding that you're capable of that and understanding what the tools are that it takes to get that done, which aren't intimidating. They're not that much to it. That puts, puts folks in a position to succeed in the new economy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just ultimately is just understanding the way the industry works. Now, communications is a huge part of the new economy as well. Um, the industry that I spend a lot of my time in, the media industry, really is a major economic engine on a global scale. I mean, if you think about the technologies over the last 30 years, the technologies that have really changed the world, they're essentially media delivery services. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they are about communication and being able to, to, to create that media, which is a broad term at this point. It's everything from music to film to television content to now to, of course, streaming content. But it's design. It is advertising. It is all sorts of types of content. And it takes so many different variables and so many different folks involved to create that content and know how to use that content strategically and know how to place that content and use all these technologies that we're talking about to deliver that content in a meaningful way, meaningful, meaning economically successful. Um, that is another major component of the new economy that we have to respect. Mm-hmm. So, 
And you, you're obviously very involved in that, and, and you're also very involved, as you mentioned earlier, with uh, training people to uh, take part in this new economy, this, this uh, communications-based economy. Um, what can you do now to help attract business to your district? Well, yeah, so this, this becomes about business friendliness and regulation, and um, mm. we're actually pretty darn smart here in South Carolina. Um, when it comes to being business friendly, we consistently rank in the top five of business friendly states. Part of that is reasonable regulation. Um, I don't know of any excessive or lax regular regulatory legislation or policies. Mm-hmm. Um, over the last couple of decades, we brought Boeing here, Volvo, BMW, and Mercedes, all of whom have been effective business partners with the state. Um, there's an ongoing push in the district that, um, that I'm in. District 114 um, to to make it more of an IT hub. We're branding it as Silicon Harbor. We've been mm-hmm. doing inter- internet technology companies here over the last 30 years. Blackbot and Benefit Focus really laid the groundwork, and then other companies are following suit over the last uh, few years or so. So um, there's good business here, but not everywhere and for everyone this goes back to what we were just talking about one of the things that we need to do better is open up opportunities in these new economy and in these industries that we're able to bring here to more of our citizens Mm -hmm. one thing we know again and the pandemic really popped us in the mouth with this too is that there's a massive income and opportunity gap there are ways to deal with this when we finally get back to work and that starts by doing a much better job of reaching out to all workers including low-wage ones with paths to better jobs and careers in this new economy we're in now, but the crucial crucial first step is information on what those jobs are and access to training so that we can be equipped for them and that's a big part of what we'll be talking about in this campaign mm-hmm. um and, you know and, and in terms of regulation, um, you know, offshore drilling is a good example here in South Carolina. Most of us here know the negatives of offshore drilling clearly outweigh the positives. Uh, one of the cool things about what our response to offshore drilling has been is, is mayors along the shore from both parties were the first to really come together and take initiative and say, we're, we don't want offshore drilling. And then others follow their lead, including Governor McMaster, Tim Scott, Cunningham. Um, the state Senate overwhelmingly passed provisos, making it almost impossible to establish offshore drilling facilities. And that's a check against any possible federal alliances, any federal legislation, which looks l- unlikely anyway at this point. And they're in the process of even stronger legislation prohibiting offshore drilling in the state. That's, a, that's an example where common sense won out, where we recognize that this is not something that's beneficial to our state. So we're going to regulate it in a pretty heavy way. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Yeah, I used to, uh, well, as I mentioned before, uh, before we were talking the show, I used to live in California and right off the shore, in Southern California, in Ventura County, and right off the shore there, there were a lot of uh, offshore drilling uh, facilities out mm-hmm. there. And despite what yeah. they say, it, it does put a lot of waste into the water because you would, you know, be walking along a nice pristine beach and then suddenly you step on a big pile of tar and uh, it yeah. uh, guess where that came from sort of thing, so... Exactly. Um, yeah, we don't want it here. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Not, and it's also just like, look, I mean, we're very, there are, 
there are a lot of problems with this duopoly that we live in, but there are ultimately, we're all good folks here in South Carolina and, and across the country. And, and we have a lot of shared interests. And one of those things is a great appreciation for the natural environment that we're fortunate to live in. And there, it, it, I'm very happy and proud with the way that all folks in South Carolina came together to say, to say no, we don't want offshore drilling. We're not going to take it. I don't. We don't care what the federal government says. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Well, um, and speaking of that, you know, we we talked about the low country earlier on. I don't want to kind of get back to one thing because one thing about the uh, low country, um, speaking of environment, is um, you're obviously down at sea level, and uh, when the earth warms up, or they, they call climate uh, climate or global warming. Uh, they anticipate the uh, the oceans to rise. Well, that's not an immediate threat, I believe. But what is an immediate threat is that the uh, storms are getting more intense. The on store uh, or the onshore um, um, storm surges are um, just doing wreaking havoc with uh, with places. I suspect that uh, District One Fourteen is uh, kind of right in the middle of that bullseye. There. What uh, what sort of ideas are you working on to help mitigate some of these issues? On a day-to-day basis, flooding is more significant. Um, and that is, there's a lot of work on technologies that are figuring out how we can solve that. Now, part of the problem, the reason we're having the flooding issues is, is, is stupid development. Mm-hmm. We're totally blind. I mean, we were developing in, in, in soft, low-lying areas where we should not have been developing, and that was a little bit of a sort of greedy response to it. So that has to be dealt with. Another positive was the city of Charleston, which District 114 is... is uh, is a part of it is a part of um and and where the flooding really happens is some areas in this area but also downtown which is very close to district 114 and the mayor of charleston um in in the city um took this dutch dialogues approach and and this is a really cool deal where they a a great example of smart pragmatic government where Mm -hmm. what they did is there's a group out of the netherlands who obviously are dealing with have been dealing with low-lying areas and flooding for a long time. And they created this ongoing, I think it was about a year long or so, um, project where these engineers from the Netherlands came here several times, public meetings. um, And what four areas were chosen, one of which is in District 114, four very susceptible to flooding areas and different technologies were were implemented in those. It's sort of an R&D method. And that whole process was then studied and used to figure out what technologies might be the most effective to deal with flooding throughout the low country. Mm-hmm. So that uh, actually, my wife is actually from Amsterdam, so, so she never misses an opportunity to remind me of uh, how the Dutch are very, very expert at uh, handling uh, these types of situations. They've been doing it for only about 800 years now, so they've learned a few things. Exactly. Yeah. So it goes back to like, hey, find out what works for other people who already dealt with the stuff you're dealing with and use that as your foundation to solve the problem. Yeah, yeah. I don't but, ever... but I'll also, I mean, uh, just to be real quick, I mean, I also got to be honest with you. I mean, like it's uh, rising sea levels over a major, major issue. This Charleston area is very susceptible to it. I mean, we're not, there's a lot of work to be done to figure that out. Yeah, no. It's a serious issue. I know it, and even in St. Louis here, I mean, we're obviously not anywhere near the ocean, but um, uh, flooding actually happens more and more often now. It's due to two things, and I think one of the things you hit upon there was was uh, overbuilding 
people don't realize that you know you just can't build in a floodplain and you know build a levee around it and uh, that just channels the water to some other poor guy downstream that now has to deal with more water so it's um yeah. it's a big issue it's a big issue over the whole nation i think but especially in the low country there because you're dealing with uh, hurricanes and um, you know, storm surges and things like that on top of normal flooding issues. Well, can I tell you one more uh, example of, of really smart approaches to, mm-hmm. to that specific development issue? Of course. Um, yeah. And that is that's this, this um, covenant called the East Edisto Conservancy, which happened over 10 years and just sort of became the official covenant. I don't say just, it was 2016. Uh, and West Rock, um, which is they have sort of restructured themselves a little bit, but at the time they were the biggest landowner in South Carolina. It was formerly Midwest Vaco. So this is their, their timber company. A lot of it was paper. Mm-hmm. And um, they, uh, they had all this land and they worked with groups here in Charleston, conservation groups, um, in creating this covenant, this in perpetuity covenant of 50,000 acres of land that goes from District 114 all the way to another protected area called the Ace Basin, which is about 20,000 acres of protected land. And by law and by decree, there are very specific density restrictions and easements on that 55,000 acres. Mm-hmm. So you can't, and it, 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 the most, if I remember correctly, is one house per one acre. It's mostly like one house per 1,000 acres or even some track, I think, is like 20,000 acres. This is working land. Property taxes are paid on the land. A lot of it is timber land. So it totally works and it functions. But it is preserving this really special area and not allowing the sort of crazy development that happens a lot when municipalities and developers are just like, okay, we build as many houses as possible because I can make more money that way. Mm -hmm. This was like, this was recognizing that the short-term approach and this was a long-term approach that is in in perpetuity. And and I'm very fortunate because I was able to work with them on it a bit in terms of documenting the process and and creating some some communication tools for their launch and as soon as i heard about it and got to the exposure and got the interview and talked to all those all the primary stakeholders it's just been one of my favorite things i've ever seen government do now this was this was mostly private sector but mm-hmm. there were nonprofits and some government entities involved and those are the sort of things that i think we can do more of and those are the sort of things that was based on just a complete open-minded approach to it and not have to be worried about your ideology or what party you're going for these are just individuals who just said this is what we want so this is what we're going to do yeah imagine that that's the way government is supposed to work isn't it <laughs> right this wasn't really government but that's okay <laughs> <laughs> Well, so government can work that way. That's what we're saying. Yeah. Well, government in this case being group of people, uh, whether they're well, there you go. Yeah. There whether you go. they good have point. a title good or point. not. Hey, we're all yeah. self-governors. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So if I may pivot then to some nationwide issues, because uh, you know it, it's it, it's well known that you know key nation key national issues that uh, kind of start at the edges really. Um, you know, we have a lot of examples about this, you know, the women's suffrage moment and so on that, that really started out at the edges and worked its way and became the 19th Amendment. Um, so state legislators are often, you know, the place where these new ideas take root and they grow. And so what are some of the ideas that you'd like to put forward in South Carolina that, uh, you know, might help plant the seeds for some national change? Well, um I mean, I think it's approach. I mean, there's we talk, we've talked about a lot of specific policies and um, but a lot of those just sort of boil down to 
common sense, clear ahead solutions. You know, and, mm-hmm. and there are specific things like term limits and rank, rank voting that I fully support. And anyone who wants to have those battles should have those. Um, but you got to pick those mm-hmm. too. Um, now, one thing I think that we're, we're right for, and this would be a high priority for me in South Carolina, is steering dark money and lobbying mm-hmm. money out of politics yeah. and government. I think that's achievable. In fact, as I understand it, this is becoming an important thing to our governor, Henry McMaster. And I'd be all about working with him on that. So how about, uh, let's talk a little bit about another national issue here, the federal budget. I don't know if you have um, many opinions about that, but it, right now we're, we're at the highest debt to GDP ratio since World War II. Uh, you know, this recent pandemic has uh, been partially responsible for that, obviously, but we were already on track to doing this, to, to hitting this number within a few years right. anyways. Um, you know, and, and the funny thing is, you know, if, if people who are turning 50 these days, uh, and I believe you have yet to, to achieve that part, but uh, um, you're not going to see, well, you're going to see Social Security go insolvent by the time you retire. And so this, these are some real big issues that we're dealing with on the national level. And maybe it's unfair to kind of, you know, ask what your opinion is, because you're going to be working at, at the state legislature level. But right. Um, right. do you feel that there is anything that you can do at the state level to perhaps help mitigate some of this financial mess that this country is in at this point? Well, South Carolina, actually, as a fiscally conservative state, and I'm proud to say that, had a $1.8 billion surplus last year which was going to be uh, wisely used for things like way overdue teacher raises. Now, because of COVID-19, we have to wait and feel out how big the impact of the pandemic is going to be, but at least there is that bit of a cushion, um, which is a lot better than the federal government can say. And I think that the most recent estimates, and again, this is going to change was, you know, we still had this $750 million surplus. Mm -hmm. So, and and one of the reasons that, South Carolina is able to do that is because fiscal responsibility is very important. And how do you do that on the federal level? Well, first of all, you, you walk the walk. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous that the sort of folks that have added to the deficit are the ones that supposedly realized how destructive it is. Mm-hmm. So yeah. saying one thing and doing another, I get it. It's politics, but it doesn't have to be that way. That's for sure. I mean, there's no reason to go into debt like we have been as a, as a, fiscal practice mm-hmm. um especially because things can happen like you don't that you don't fully anticipate like a pandemic and all of a sudden you're already crazy deficit is ballooning stimulus packages 14.5 percent employment or, or actually more like 15 and, and less private spending and lots of tax revenues there so that's the problem mm-hmm. the broad answer is more efficient government spending it gets said but there's no reason it can't happen i mean look i I am proud that every project I've ever managed, and there's a lot of them, has been under budget, or at least at budget. And if, mm-hmm. and if, it, if there needs to be any sort of funds added to the budget, there's a darn good reason for it. So don't spend what you don't have, and you use creative ideas and innovation to solve problems. You just don't throw money at it. Uh, and transparency, which would solve, solve a lot of problems with some issues we have had here in South Carolina, like this whole sort of, this whole scan of nuclear power expansion thing, which we don't have to get into unless you want to, but that's a great example of that spending. So brain power, pushing, pushing for ideas that don't, pushing for ideas don't cost money, being lazy and going for the easy approach does. So. 
No, I mean you brought up the nuclear issue there. I I I, um, I think people uh, outside of South Carolina may not um, um, understand what that what that is all about. But if you could just sort of give us the Reader's Digest version of of um, what happened there and and how uh, and why it happened in in your opinion. Sure. Okay. So it's, this is a nine billion dollar boondoggle that we've been dealing with over the last three years. And what happened is one of one of our main utility companies, public utilities, SCNG, and their parent company, Scana, wanted to expand their nuclear power plant in Fairfield County. And originally it was going to cost $11 billion. It ballooned out from there. Nobody had a handle on it. They were, unnes- they were doing all sorts of unnecessary spending, mm-hmm. going back to efficient spending, because the contractor got a 15% markup on everything. And then they went bankrupt from all the spending. 5,000 workers lost their job. And then the project was abandoned at a, at a $9 billion loss. Customers were billed for it through surcharges until the state house finally reversed that. And Scanna knew there were big problems early on and throughout. And they knew that it wasn't going to work, but they kept it going, probably to save face and keep getting paid. The SEC is now involved, alleging fraud against Scanna and Scanna executives. Civil lawsuits are going. It's just a complete mess. Wow. Now, Scanna also spent $1.25 million in lobbying dollars um, with, with state house reps. So mm-hmm. what were the state house reps paying attention to? It, it shows you how easily public projects can go bad if they're not adequately watched. And, and this is the epitome of silliness. What happens when there's no transparency and the public servants who have some level of oversight on a project or a company are getting money from that company? You know, yeah. it's, uh, it's just wasteful. I hate waste. And this is why honest, effective, transparent public service is so important. Yeah, when you talked earlier about uh, you know trying to eliminate uh, dark money, you know, as, as one of you, you sort of a, a framed, I sort of framed it. The question is is a nationwide question, but it also applies to the local area. Uh, dark money can definitely influence things. I mean, uh, it sounded to me like, and when I read about this uh, this uh, nuclear issue, that it was almost like a cost plus type of program where the people who are receiving the money had no incentive to. Uh, produce right. right, and so right. it was originally yeah, exactly. sold as a seven billion dollar uh, thing, and it ballooned up to nine billion dollars. And guess who's holding the bag on it now? So, and uh, also you you mentioned yeah. things about transparency as well. I mean, these are these are things that apply at the local level as well as the national level. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, especially so. And look, I mean, I want to be fair. I'm not saying that everybody who got lobbying dollars from Scana were right. knew knew what was going on and and chose just to pocket the money and ignore it so they could get more. But, <laughs> I mean, there's there probably was some of that, and there's no reason to have that sort of influence. It's not a naive approach. You know, I mean, you you can do a lot without without spending a lot of money. I, I, I do that every day for clients for my own projects. Um, mm-hmm. And there's uh, there's just no reason to open yourself up to that sort of influence. It's so it's self-serving, and that's and that's the problem. You know, it's like I'll be totally honest, and I don't want this to sound idealistic or naive. Having the if I'm fortunate enough to get the seat in the state house, it's a job. You know, this this it's a job, and I, when I take a job, I I take it because I want to do it and I want to do it well. I don't take a job because I want to look for other ways that it's going to benefit me, ways that deviate from what my purpose is. Mm-hmm. And that's the simple attitude. It's what it's the attitude that. Everybody I know has in their day-to-day jobs. I don't know what happens, um, you know, when, (laughs) I don't know how that changes, but I don't see that happening with me. Yeah. 
Well, I've, um, I don't know what the, uh, I didn't check into this and, um, excuse me for not you know, looking what the, uh, what the pay is for, uh, South Carolina representatives and, and, and senators, but I know that in Missouri, they're paid about $35,000 a year yeah, plus uh, a per diem. And, uh, the reason why I bring this up is because, you know, you talk about it, about this being a job, uh, and, and, one of the reasons why I have found that people take these jobs is because they're trying to inflate their own personal piggy banks, right? Their own personal businesses. Uh, typically, it's a lot of lawyers that, that, that do this. And so if you're a lawyer and you're also a state representative or a state senator, that says a lot uh, to your potential clients that are now going to be knocking on your door and, and uh, you know, right. wanting, you know. <laughs> So yeah. it's um it's sort of a pet peeve of mine that we're kind of jumping on here because I think that if you pay the state representatives enough to actually make a decent living at it, then they're not um, the incentive for um, trying to do it just to inflate your own business is uh, goes away or hopefully is mitigated to some degree. That's an interesting point. So the uh, there's 120 seats I believe in the South Carolina House of Representatives. 10 grand is the salary. Um, now it's essentially quarter time. It, it, the session um, just generally is from January to May and it's three days a week. So, and you do get the per diem as well. I look at that and I'm like, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> because I mean, there's, it's my immediate feeling is this there. This is about be, do, doing good stuff. That's the job. And right. it's not about the paycheck. I have many jobs that I take for that reason, you know? So that's, that's my feeling on it. Now, I've also talked to some folks, for instance, about the school board here in Charleston County, which is often problematic and way too political and is a real problem in terms of teachers, in, in terms of allowing teachers and administrators to perform well. And I, there's a guy who's super smart who's advocating that maybe those school board salaries should go up. And I'm like, why should they go up? They suck at their job. Yeah. But the point of it is, is because those in all things, you, in order for things to work, you have to have quality people in place. Right. And, and the reality of it is, is a good paycheck is going to put that, those people in place. So that's the same philosophy you're talking about when it comes to, uh, to uh, representatives. I still, I just, I don't, I just don't like to spend money. <laughs> you know, I don't like to spend state money if, if we don't have to, but it's a very, very fair point. So. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I'll do it for ten grand. I'm happy to. Yeah, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a uh, get paid a little bit it, it, in Missouri here. It's uh, January to May. Also, uh, they can be called back at different parts of the year as well. But uh, right. there's other That's states like too. California. I believe they make a uh, hundred and four thousand or something like that, which. <laughs> Um, yeah. you know, to me that now that's enough really. It, it, it's, it's probably yeah. a, all your job to it and check into yeah. the details. But, um, now you if, if you pay people a living, a living wage like that, then they can, um, yeah. you know, they can, that's, that, yeah. they can do a better job. Uh, sorry to interrupt. I, no. That was just, that's a really, that's a really good point. I mean, it's a really fair point. Now I'm also, I mean, again, 10 grand a quarter time. It's, you know, that's still not that much, I guess. 40 grand if you calculate it as an annual salary. Um, yeah, so I mean, so we're, but that's part of us being a fiscally conservative state. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, 35 grand, six figures, 10 grand, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't have, uh, I don't have strong feelings on it one way or the other. 10 grand sounds fine to me, but I completely get your point. Yeah. And, and I think it's a, it's a really good one. Yeah. You know, um, because yeah, that is a way to eliminate, um, 
any sort of additional motivation being, okay, I'm not doing this for the salary. I'm going to look for other ways to monetize that position. And that's when you get into this dark money and this influence side. Exactly. So yeah, if, yeah. if that would, would be a way to eliminate some of that, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe we can talk about that a little bit more, but uh, we're kind of running up on our time right here. But I just want to ask you a couple more questions. Uh, we we talked about the pandemic uh, sort of in um, indirectly, but um, this is having a major effect on the campaign season this year. And do you feel that, um, uh, first of all, do you feel that South Carolina is striking a, a good balance between public health, safety, and public economic security? And um, yeah, what, if anything, would you change in that area? Actually, I think we are doing a pretty good job. I, I mean, it's obviously this is complex in so many different ways and in ways that we've never encountered before. So, I mean, yeah. I, and ultimately there are people, medical public health experts that have spent their whole lives doing this. And so presumably they know much more than I do. So I certainly respect the heck out of their opinion, you know, um, but also it, it did seem like there was a little bit of a restriction in terms of having a full-throated conversation about what we're willing to do, what sort of restrictions we're willing to do. And that doesn't mean that we wouldn't have gone exactly where we ended up, which was at worst case an overreaction, but a, a reasonable one. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I do think, um, I do think, uh, I wish that conversation had happened and it still does as, as it goes along, but we're, we've been cautious and I think we're now due for, a reasonable and responsible opening up, which is exactly what we're doing. In, in terms specifically in South Carolina, I know some ranking gave us an F, whatever those standards are. South Carolina has had 9,000 cases of coronavirus and about 400 deaths. That's not insignificant, but it's less than a lot of states. Mm-hmm. The numbers are currently going down, and we're fortunate for that. Anthony Fauci, um, at his, his uh, congressional testimony, praised what we're doing here in South Carolina. Now, he did that to Tim Scott, so maybe he was just mm-hmm. <laughs> flattering the guy. But he thinks other states should follow our lead, and, and I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, now, realistically, not everyone – so we are opening up, and I think we're being reasonable. Not everyone's going to follow social distance protocols. Beach access right. and activity is a, is a whole issue, has been, and with this weekend being, being Memorial Day, it's becoming a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, but the best we can do is control it as much as we can. And if it becomes an issue, we start to, we are definitely plateaued. It's not going down. If we, if that starts to change, like every other state nationwide, we'll have to reassess. Um, now, I, w- I do want to say that conversely, those who think we've lived in a police state the last couple of months because of public health closures and stay at home orders and because they can't go to the beach they want to are clearly never lived in a police state. And yeah. I think it's awfully pretty disrespectful to real tyranny, like the way what this country was based on a response to, mm-hmm. um, to act as if you're going to get arrested or anything. I mean, I leave my house plenty and I do it responsibly and there's no officers waiting to arrest me or harass me or give me tickets. Right. I've often said, and I tell my wife this, I can knock out this virus in three weeks. And she says, how's that? I said, well, put everybody in a box, you know, and they don't leave the box for three weeks. You <laughs> know. Uh, that's really, and kind of like that's what we've been doing, a variation of that in this country. And we're finding yeah. out, you know, that that right. doesn't work. Uh, but there are reasonable things. And I, I like the I like your response because it, it does keep mindful of the economic security that we're losing at this point. Uh, and yes, we yeah. have to pay attention to our health, too. So, 
you know, we can do both. And I think South Carolina um, is doing both, actually. So that's that's very yeah. a very good response. I like that. It is a, and this is what I mean by, like, look, I mean, it, it, you're respectful to people who have died. And, and you want, you can only imagine, I'm fortunate. I haven't lost anybody. I don't even know anybody closely who has it. Um, but we also just know that things can happen and we don't, that doesn't mean we stop living our lives. I mean, if, if right. people die in automobile crashes at a really, at a pretty strong rate, but that doesn't mean we don't drive cars. It is a risk that we, that we have decided we're willing to take. I don't know if that is true in this particular instance, but I don't think that there would have been anything wrong with having that conversation. And that conversation wasn't allowed in a lot of ways based on fear. And I just don't think that's a healthy way to sort of measure the situation. Yeah. I like that your your analogy to the car is, is very apropos because, like you say, it is dangerous, but yet we recognize it. And so that's why we have laws and we have people that are, you know, before you can drive a car, you have to prove that you can do so responsibly. And there are such things as right. driver's ed. So this is the same sort of thing that could apply to the pandemic as well. You know, you have to follow protocols yeah. that, that slow down the spread yeah. of it. You know, so, yeah. um, good. So has the... I'm, it's a dumb question, I know, because you're going to say yes, of course. But I was going to ask you this, anyways. How has has the pandemic affected your your campaign, and, and if so, how, and what are you doing to to mitigate it? Well, um, you know, I would say it's uh, compared to other things, it's been affected as a, a pretty small amount. I, I mean, we're uh, so it's the first time I've I've run a political campaign. I'm very very fortunate to have a lot of of seasoned folks who really believe in the message and believe what we're doing, who have, uh, who are supporting us and consulting with us. Um, so what would normally be happening at this stage, I couldn't exactly tell you, but we do know that sort of social media access and the virtual campaign that that is, was always going to be an integral part of this. That's exactly what's happening now, mm -hmm. you know, and, and really as an independent um, working with a third party, this is about putting awareness out there. And making and my whole strategy with this, our whole strategy with this is is making it really clear that we're head and shoulders the best candidate for this job, and that's the time that we can this right now we can spend that time making that making folks aware that that's the case. This is a small part of it. The legwork, especially at a race this size, is going to be really what's important. And this mm -hmm. is the sort of things like house parties, canvassing, speaking to groups, that sort of thing. Um, we are doing virtual house parties via Zoom. Those have been pretty successful. Um, but, yeah, I mean, what I'm hoping is the case is that we're able to to do those sort of face-to-face -face events, and they're going to be at a relatively small scale, mm -hmm. um, before we get too close to Election Day. So mid to late summer, um, mm -hmm. if not a little bit earlier. It just depends on people's individual comfort level. Um but yeah, that's, I would say that's the only restriction, but it hasn't been a significant one yet. Okay. I mean, obviously if this was like September, October, and let's hope we're not, you know, <laughs> back, yeah. to, back to where we were a month ago then, um, that would be a big, uh, would, would be really impacting us. But for now, we're able to get a lot of communication done and, and reach out to folks and, and explain to them what we're talking about wanting to do um, virtually. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good to know. So um, before we go, I, I'd like to uh, ask you, this is what I call the call to action part of the uh, interview here. Um, how can people uh, participate in your campaign and possibly contribute? Yeah, um, 
So our website is bradforsc.com. That's a great place to check us out. We've, we've got a lot of our video content on there, which is some pretty straightforward messaging about my background, about what our whole approach to this campaign is. Uh, we'll, we'll be dropping video content pretty regularly just because that's a very effective way to get that message and engage with voters. Um, Brad for SC is all our social feeds, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. So check those out. And then there are opportunities to donate. And if you're be interested in donating, it would be greatly appreciated at the website. Again, bradforsc.com. So it's uh, not not the number four, but the but the spelled out F O R Brad. Oh, thank, yeah, not the not the number four. B R A D F O R S C dot com. All right, right. Well, uh, thank you, Brad. We've been talking with Brad Jane, who is running for the one hundred fourteenth state representative district in South Carolina. Thank you for dropping by and uh, chatting with us this evening, Brad. Thanks for having me, Dan. I enjoyed it. And now, a few words from Jim Rex, the Alliance Party's national chair. Well, Dan, it's a pleasure to be on again, uh, especially on this Memorial Day. Uh, this is a, uh, an amazing year for all of us in this country, and this is an amazing day and an amazing year because we have a lot of challenges, but we also have so much to be thankful for and so many people over the centuries who have sacrificed for this incredible nation and the uh, benefits that have accrued to all of us because of their sacrifices. And um, it it really makes me think about two things, and I just want to briefly mention those to your listeners. On this Memorial Day, um, let's keep in mind that one of the things that all of these men and women over the decades have sacrificed for, in some cases the ultimate sacrifice, their lives, was to make sure that we lived in a full-blown democracy, that we had a democracy where we had options and choices and freedoms. And I think it's really important to remember that those freedoms include the right to vote for whomever you want, and that no party, no private fundraising organization, which is what our parties are, owns your vote. And they sure don't have the right to tell you or me or anybody else that you're spoiling, quote unquote, their election if you don't vote for them or for their candidates. So nobody owns your vote. People have died to make sure that was the case. And so the next time somebody tells you you have to register in a certain way or vote in a certain way or vote for a certain person or party, I hope you remember that. These people sacrificed to give the vote to us to make that decision, that determination. Um, So the other thing I I guess I would mention that I think about, at least on Memorial Day, is what an exceptional nation this is and how for so long we have been the gold standard on the planet for what a democracy could and should look like and how it should perform. And unfortunately, the glitter of that gold has has not been as bright in recent decades. And I hope we can get back to that. I hope we can get back to seeing that America, not only for our sake as Americans, but really for the, for the planet's sake, needs to be the very best, needs to be exemplary, the things that matter the most. Not just for us, as I said, but also to become a model, as we have many times in the past, for the rest of the world. And so I I hope we'll 
keep those high expectations in terms of what we can be and should be as um, this incredible, uh, unprecedented uh, approach to democracy and freedom and governing. And uh, right now with the coronavirus and all of the incredible challenges it's providing us, I, I hope that our nation can lead the world in showing what an economic renewal can look like after um, after this virus has been subdued, that we can show what America 2.0 can be, not just rebuild, but reimagine uh, and come out of this looking better than we did before. I think we can also hopefully realize that we must lead the world in combating climate change. And our response to what America 2.0 will look like needs to include that that answer to that challenge so that we can lead the world in, in denying climate change, uh, taking away from our children and grandchildren the opportunity to live in a healthy environment and planet. The other thing that uh, hopefully we'll look for in terms of the gold standard or the gold medal, if you will, in terms of an Olympic challenge is healthcare. The virus has shown us very clearly that we do not have a healthcare system in this nation that is adequate for all of our citizens. And um, it needs to be affordable and accessible for everybody. It's a right, not a privilege. And that's true whether we have a pandemic or not. And we need to, we need to improve that and take advantage of this lesson that we're learning. And then last but not least, we need to have an educational system that is a gold medal education system. It needs to be the best in the world. We need to show the rest of the world how you create an educated and trained citizenry so that we can become the innovation nation and the rest of the world can learn from us and hopefully emulate us as we go forward. So those are the challenges and the opportunities that, that I think about on Memorial Day. And um, I'm sure we can do it. I'm sure we can do it as Americans. We've done it in the past. We can do it again. And we owe it to those, as I said, who have sacrificed so much to put us in the position we're in. So um, I hope everyone has had a, a, a restful and safe uh, Memorial Day weekend. And um, I look forward to um, talking further uh, on uh, future podcasts, Alliance After Dark, about the gold medal nation that America can be and must be in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. Also, keep in mind that the podcast now has a Twitter page at Alliance On Air. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. 
I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.